Hey everybody, as you probably know, we are in the midst of a global pandemic of COVID-19. All touring for this foreseeable future has completely stopped. And if you'd like to help out the touring crew that had lost out on a lot of work, please visit show-logistics.com and we're going to be donating all of the profits from the merch sold on the first page directly to Crew Nation, which is going to help touring industry professionals that need to get through the next couple months until we're back on the road again. And anything you can do to help would be greatly appreciated. Thanks so much. Hey everybody, welcome to Bus Call, the podcast dedicated to touring industry professionals and their stories. My name is Ryan Goldbacher and I'm going to be your host. In these interviews, we're going to break down how touring professionals got into the industry, advice they have for up-and-comers, and awesome stories from the road. For more info, visit us at show-logistics.com and click on the Bus Call podcast at the top of the page. Ben Minch is uh, an agent over at APA in Nashville. Uh, he works with Angels and Airwaves, Chaos, Chaos, Emery, Plain White Tees, Mystery Science Theater 3000 Live, which is awesome. I loved watching Mystery Science Theater. And uh, we both work for Sebastian Bach. Ben Minch, welcome to Bus Call. How's it going, man? It's going great, man. Thank you for having me. That's basically everybody I work with. Uh, Hawthorne Heights, I think, was also in that list. I'm honestly blessed to, to work with so many great bands and shows, not just bands, but, you know, theatrical stuff. You know, you, you mentioned Mystery Science Theater 3000, which is obviously uh, a 180 from Sebastian Bach. Um, <laughs> I don't know, man. That, I'll, that's I'll, his kind of thing. I'm sure he watched that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a nerd like that. Um, But also, I I do another show called Secret Walls, which is basically, in a nutshell, uh, live 90-minute street art battles done uh, two artists, two teams versus each other, black paint only, white walls, uh, and crowd decides who wins. So part of being an agent and just having a passionate love for, for the arts as a whole and to keep myself fresh and to keep my love and passion in what I do, I try to find things that are you know a little outside the box it just makes the job a little more fun because it's new deals to cut you're dealing with different personalities you're dealing with different rooms new promoters that kind of leads me into what i'm going to talk about uh you know i mean obviously we communicate a lot but i, I have honestly except in a general sense i don't have too much of an idea of how it starts for an agent everybody wants to you know get in the music business to be a rock star but what was what's the story for you uh becoming an agent yeah so um I will preface this whole story with I never wanted to be an agent. And <laughs> I, I actually, I, I started playing in bands. That's how I got into to booking bands. So I, back in middle school, I was in a band with my older brother and we were in like a punk metal band. Being a middle child, I always felt like I had a managerial role in life. So I fell on my shoulders in this band. You know, when we needed shows, I started emailing people and sort of figuring out how to get my band to play this BFW hall or this youth club or whatever, whatever it was that, you know, that went on for a couple of years. I started this little production. I called it hyphen productions because my last name's hyphenated. And I was just like booking our band. And after I slipped from that band, after a few years, I started this, this hyphen production thing. I was working with, like the local radio station to put on like little battle of the bands. And I'm in high school at this point. I, I still don't really have any idea what I'm doing. Like, I don't understand 
the concept of deals. I don't understand the concept of folds or really anything. I'm just trying to feel my way through this. Uh, I, I grew up in Vermont. As you can imagine, it wasn't a, a massive music scene like you would find in like New York or Boston or, or LA or whatever. So from there, I ended up joining up with another Vermont band. I got accepted to Berkeley College Music, so now I'm right around 18 years old. I was also working at an audio company, so I was actually doing live sound um, and like mixing for a local band. I had no idea you did that. That's why I know how to talk some tech stuff with you guys. <laughs> That's the world I grew up in. So I actually worked there for four or five years. Actually, before I left for college, the owner of that company offered me a, a full-time gig with, with better pay and and all this stuff uh, in exchange for me to not go to college. Uh, it was kind of funny. I think my mom would have disowned me if I didn't go to college. So I went to Berkeley. I was still playing in this punk rock band. I was still sort of booking some bands here and there on the side, but I really wasn't like, you know, all in yet. And I actually, at Berkeley, I tried to get into the music production and engineering program. In my mind at that time, I wanted to twist knobs and push faders in the studio all day. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Funny thing about it was I got denied from a major twice, two years in a row, because it's like a super difficult process to get accepted in that program at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. So after I got denied the second time, I was like, you know what? I'm going to say screw this thing. I'm going to try my hand at the business side. I already have like a general understanding of the music business. I don't really know what I would want to do. Like everybody always says they want to go into A&R or whatever. I was like, yeah, you know, that's kind of cool. Whatever. I'll just, I'll apply and I'm pretty sure I'll get in. So I applied. I actually got in music business with a focus in management it was like you could have music business with a focus in legal in management or in god i can't remember what the other one was but it was it was was the first three of them anyway so i was on like the music business management track i stopped playing in this punk rock band and i was like you know what i'm gonna sort of take this booking thing that i started back in high school and see what i can do with it so i took this this little company hyper productions that i started in high school I was like, I'm going to bring back this name. I'm going to see if I can do something, like book some bands, maybe some bands, some bands, and really sort of get like a general understanding of the sort of grassroots bottom, as low as you can go. And and I'm going to figure out how to work my way up. Because Berkeley was teaching you like, you know, I would have classes and they'd be like, all right, so build this tour budget for this band and you're going to play 20 arenas. And generally you make a, you know, $250,000 a night, build a tour budget on that. It's like, motherfucker, we're going to get out of this program and no one is going to be doing that. Yeah, yep. I started at the bottom. <laughs> and the only, you know, so I saw the only way I was going to figure out how to learn that stuff is for me to just go out and do it. So I from productions, I was booking bands, I was managing bands. I started getting a couple other kids around Berkeley from like my music business classes. I was like, Hey, do you want to like book some bands with me? Or do you have any interest in managing bands? And that's actually how I met my wife, Kristen. I met her at a party. She was doing business. And I sort of was like, hey, I got this like company. Like, do you want to like help me out on some stuff? And she was like, okay. You know, I had a van and trailer from when I was touring the punk band. So I also became like an Uber for these Berkeley bands, like totally illegally, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I had like not, not enough insurance in the world. Berkeley's one of the most diverse schools in the country. Nobody has their license, but they all are musicians. So they all need to get to gigs. So I was charging these kids like 40 bucks to take them from their dorm to these different venues around Boston. And then I would take them out for like little two, three day tours or whatever. And in doing that, I was meeting all the promoter reps and the door guys and um, learning all the venues in sort of like the New England area, just from driving all these bands around the shows. So I started like building up a really nice Rolodex and started to make a, a little name for myself. I lived in South Boston, not to be confused with South Sea. 
Southeast where all the, the Irish mob whitey boulder people are. <laughs> I lived in South South Boston, which is like super duper ghetto. Uh-huh. But I be, I became friends with everybody on my block. And through that, I built myself a little security team. And so I would rent those guys out for house parties. So I was making like 300 bucks a weekend to, to rent out like these three big dudes that like lived on my corner. And I'd throw them 75 bucks each and pocket a couple bucks for myself. It was just like a really crazy, fun time. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was trying to do everything. I'm totally on board with you on that kind of stuff. I mean, I went to school too. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was worthless, but it's just a little unrealistic. It's like you said, you're what, like 20 years old doing budgets for, you know, arenas and nobody is going to start you out in that position. Mm -hmm. The best education that I see out there is what I call the punk rock education. I know so many guys out there. I just did an interview with my buddy Thomas O'Keefe. He's a tour manager for Weezer right now, and he tour managed Train for years and stuff like that. And he started out just playing in a band. And then he was the one that figured out how long the drive was going to be to the next gig, booked the hotel rooms. One day, that band says, hey, do you want to be the tour manager? And it just kind of grows from there. And he, you know, it's a very, very grassroots type of education. And to be honest with you, that's the best way to go, I think. Yeah. I'm not opposed to an education at all, but, you know, the school I went to, was one of the most expensive in the world and they had the most impressive equipment in the world and I have never ever been to a studio in Nashville that operated like that you know it's just right. Right. <laughs> it, it was you know and it's all impressive stuff but it's just not reality and uh, you know the, you know the 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 bottom up way I think is the best way to learn how to do this that's how I learned mm-hmm. how to be a tour manager exactly and and this industry is built on contacts Berkeley is an impressive name but um, it also, it also, people see Berkeley and they think egotistical prick well, and they're right. A lot of people are right. Well, it's, well, it, and I would absolutely, I agree with that, but there's still plenty of people that come out of there that really do know what they're doing and it's a shame or that really want to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame because mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's absolutely true that so many people come out of those schools and I can think of a few off the top of my head. A couple of them are in Nashville. They just kind of think they know everything and it's a little bit dangerous to, to come out like that. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. So, Bison um, turned into like a thing uh, through my junior year um, and then I got accepted to do our London internship program um, and I was funny this is the last year that ended up doing our london program because of a bunch of stuff that happened but i was the one and only student that got accepted by the agency group in london at the time to intern over there uh which was super cool because i got to hang out with neil warnock and tom Tapp and ross warnock and anna brewers and i mean there was becky sudgren there's so many great agents that came out of came out of that office before uta took over agency group and some of those people split but it was just such a cool experience to sort of see how things were done sort of across the pond and sort of get that viewing of, of, of how they do it over there. And it was a blast. I mean, I was there for three months. Um, funny enough, my Kristen, uh, my wife, uh, did, did the same program. She worked for a label over there. So came back, finished up my credits at Berkeley. At this point, I'm still booking bands. I'm managing a couple bands. Shout out to Lance Tobin, who we ran this thing together. Uh, Lance is now the buyer at Irving Plaza in New York City but out of Berkeley he went over to Crossroads and he was he took Bright Music Hall and just gave it a 180 facelift and made that just an incredibly successful club over the past number of years and then from uh, Brighton he took over Paradise 
And now he's in New York City at Irving. So I was also working a dead-end job at like an indoor trampoline park after I <laughs> finished up all my credits you know, to, make some, to make some cash because I wasn't making nearly enough money, you know, a couple bucks here and there. I went in one day and they're like, we want to make you a manager. And I went home and I was like, there's no way I would be able to live with myself if I spent all this time into trying to make music happen and I instead end up at an indoor trampoline park. Uh-huh. So at night, I sent a note to the... CFO in London, who I became friends with at the agency group, I was like, hey, I need to get out of Boston. Does agency group have anything in any of the other offices? I know I know London's a long shot, but like LA, leaving New York, whatever. And he's back the next day. He's like, there's an LA internship available. Do you want me to connect you with them? Sure. Yeah, this is with the agency group before, before UTA took them over. So I got on the phone with him. I was like, hey, you know, do you have anything available? I said, I have an internship position available. Um, how soon can you be here? And I said, when you want me there, he's like, if you can be here in two weeks, that would be great. I said, I'll see you in two weeks. <laughs> I hung up the phone. I walked in my job, quit, or gave my, gave my two-week notice, bought a plane ticket, packed one bag, and flew to L.A., and I slept on floors. Shout out to my friend Stacey Heath, who was out there trying to make it, and I, I slept on her floor. Actually, the first night in L.A., I had no, like, no air mattress, no nothing. I literally just took my clothes out and just spread them on the floor and just slept in my clothes for a few nights. My internship, I think, was only supposed to be like two days a week. I was there five days a week, nine to five, mm-hmm. or whatever the hours were, and just trying to do whatever I could uh, to get an assistant gig, because these are all they're, they're unpaid internships, right? Mm-hmm. In London, you got a per diem, you got like a $10, they give you 10 bucks for lunch every day you work there, or, <laughs> or intern there, but LA, there wasn't anything. That's like yeah. the theme of the music industry is yeah. work a lot and don't get paid. Oh yeah. <laughs> yep. I, I feel like, I feel like those internships put your standards in place. The last day of that internship, like I was not legally in the state of California, not able to intern at this, at agency any longer. Mm-hmm. Last day, um, I got an interview at APA. The woman who I was writing with was the assistant to this guy, Craig Newman. And she was like, he's already interviewed a bunch of people, but he likes your resume. Why don't you come in real, you know, can you come in today? Sure. You know, and at the agency group, it's band t-shirts and shorts. And I'm in pants, chucks, and a band t-shirt. So I run to an H&M. I grab a button-up shirt. I go to APA. I have my interview. <laughs> um, and uh, my, my last name being Mensch. And growing up in Vermont and not knowing what a Mensch is, uh, and then moving to LA and having everybody be like, oh, you're a mensch, you're a mensch. And then understanding what that actually means. I'm 99% sure that's the reason why Craig Newman actually hired me right. what, as his assistant at APA. What, what is a mensch? <laughs> a mensch is, is a good person. It can mean Superman. It's just a, an honorable person, which is a really good fucking last name to have. Yeah, man. That's, <laughs> like yeah, you're I didn't a mensch, know that. You're a good person. So yeah, so got hired as an assistant at APA. And then I just put in the time uh, and really sort of buckled down and but really took a deep dive on understanding why everybody did certain things, how to cut deals, how to talk to people, how to develop my personality, my on the phone personality, my in-person personality. I'm a person, I'm a middle child, right? Like I like to please other people and, and get that gratification back. And I think that's sort of what's helped me grow in this industry. And then it's just, you take one step and that leads to a bigger step and that leads to a bigger step and that leads to a bigger step. And as long as you keep taking advantage of those steps that are available to you, sort of sky's the limit. I mean, there's really no class, there's, there's really no ceiling as an agent because you're as big as your biggest band, mm-hmm. right? So if you got a big band, you can get one bigger than that. And if you got a bigger band, then you can get another bigger band. Mm-hmm. 
and so on and so forth. And you start developing bands and, you know, finding what you like and aligning that band with other people that are like-minded to you and, you know, how to build a team. And there's so much more than just like picking up the phone and like wheeling and dealing deals. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of, I like this. I think this is going to, you know, I think this genre, this band can do this, this number in this many years. Mm -hmm. If I have these people behind it, it's a fun game to play. It's, It's a lot of, as much gambling as a promoter, but you're gambling with your time in the mm. sense of trying to develop acts. Yeah, it's it's always been interesting to me because like there's a lot of thought that goes into what the right opening act might be for, for a gig or what festival to go to. Yeah. It surprised me just over the years learning how much you guys actually do say no uh, because it's not the right thing. Yeah. There was an instance where we were doing a festival in uh, Atlanta. I can't remember what what it was, but it was like in April or something like that. So there was there was a storm that came through, and they ended up like canceling our set but they offered to, for us to go the next day or something like that i was like oh f- of course you know we, we had a day off or whatever we'll just do the show again and there was a lot of back and forth about whether or not they should actually do the gig and the final decision was made to not do it because they they would still get paid because it's force measure weather issue or whatever you you still get paid for the gig and they thought if they if they just moved it to the next day they wouldn't get booked again the next year and the next year they did get booked and they got like three or four times as much money. But, you know, it's just like it's it's things like that that you don't really think about as a tour manager. You know, that really there's a lot that goes into that kind of stuff. Right. So you said it, you said a really interesting word, force majeure, which has come up. I mean, I think it, I think it's really important for people to know because that term has been thrown around a lot. Uh-huh. So that force majeure clause in our contract basically state, you know, act of God, hurricane, earthquake pandemic, all those things fall under force majeure. Now, in your case, when it when it downpoured and the artist couldn't go on stage because it's fucking downpouring, that's actually not considered force majeure because in our contracts, we always protect an artist for any outdoor event, artists is to be paid ready to shine if they are ready, willing, and able to play. So if that artist is standing side stage ready to go on stage, but it's downpouring and it downpours all day and they can't get up there, they're still liable to get paid. That's why, that's why promoters get insurance. Mm-hmm. force majeure is something that nobody can do anything about you can't get there it's not safe for people national emergency all that stuff falls under that that's what we're dealing with right now with this corot with, with with COVID-19 and these shows literally it cannot happen the artist cannot get there the promoter cannot make it happen in that case everybody gets refunded um fans get refunded fans get refunded the artist doesn't get paid Okay. Like hypothetically, God forbid, let's say we're on Sebastian Bach for our fall tour, and let's say there's a spike and an outbreak in one of the cities we're supposed to go to. We don't get paid for that because it is a it, it is it is part of a pandemic ongoing cause falls under the force majeure. Uh, but if we were there and like for example on a previous tour where the lights went out. <laughs> not our fault. We're there ready, willing, and able to play. Yeah. A state of emergency has to be declared by a local government for it to fall under a storm, a, a force majeure. Think of it like that. Okay. That's interesting. I'm sure you're dealing with that quite a bit right now. So what's the story? I mean, you kind of got a little bit into to, into APA, how you got the gig there, but what's what's the story of how you kind of moved up through the ranks? So I started as, as an assistant. A lot of people don't go straight in as an assistant. There are, there, there is a way to, to get to where you want to go, but if you have no experience, you generally start at that mailroom position. I think we call it our agent training program <laughs> for APA, and it's different, again, it's different for every other agency, but APA, you start in the mailroom, 
where you're delivering mail, you're wearing a suit and tie every day, you're you're, delivering, you're covering desks, so you're getting an idea of what the music department is like, what, what the comedy touring department's like, what the literary department's like, physical production, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then as desks open up, you're sort of one of the first people in line to interview for those desks. In concerts, it's a lot about personality because you're out in public uh, a lot more than the other systems. Mm-hmm. You're covering shows five nights a week, six nights a week, um, and the agents really need to sort of drive with their with their assistants. Craig and I are still friends. I mean, he officiated our wedding. Uh, I assisted him for three and a half years. Um, we sort of know each other really well, and it just it just naturally fit. He sort of gave me a lot of pointers, a lot of information about how he did stuff. And sort of like from that whole experience, I sort of like figured out my little code of ethics, what I do as an agent uh, and how I present myself and, you know, ultimately things I won't do. Mm-hmm. You know, I get everybody to pay their bills, but there's, but there's some things that are more important than money. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, especially people in the business who have been around for a while, there's a lot of people who really understand that. And I feel like some people find out the hard way that, you know, I think reputation is more important than money. That's interesting because that you're, you're kind of like in between, you know, ultimately you work for the artist, but you, you have to play that game where you have to develop relationships with, with uh, promoters. And, you know, I've, I've, we've both been in that situation where it kind of gets hairy. I mean, how do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, there's, uh, you know, we're probably both thinking about that, that one time. Yeah. No, it just popped in my head and we're not yeah. going to name names. No, here, we but. won't name names, but we'll just say this, 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 this these, I'll say this. Well, I'm. You know, there's probably two things we're thinking of. Like there was. Um, well, I won't go into it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know. No, but you. But you. But you get in that position where, uh, in a specific situation, a promoter's not living up to their end of the bargain. How yeah. do you, how do you navigate so that, that? Yeah, it's hard to navigate because your ultimate number one priority is the artist. Mm-hmm. That's what you're taught day one at any agency that you go to. You don't work for the promoter. You work for the artist. Yeah. But at the same time, without those promoters and without those relationships, how am I supposed to get my other band mm-hmm. to this festival or this event or this casino or this whatever it is? Uh, you know, how do you how do you navigate that? And that is not I, I don't think that's a, a black and white answer. There's no black and white answer. I think it's mm. you know you've got to that's sort of when your personality comes into play and how you talk to that promoter and what your relationship is like with that promoter. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I'll, I'll fucking burn a city down for one of my artists. I've seen you do it. <laughs> yeah, but, uh... I've done it before. I'll do it. I'm sure I'll do it again. I but mean, you know, I brought baseball bats to shows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but I, and, and I think you'd probably agree that the legitimate promoters out there are 99% of the time, you know, up and up and do the right thing. Uh, you do got to understand that, all the risk is in their hands. I mean, if they if they commit to a guarantee, if two people show up to that show, that artist is walking with their guarantee, and they're going to lose their ass. Yeah, it's just an interesting interesting thing. Yeah, and there are times when I'll go to bat for a promoter and go to management and really just break down the the conversation and break mm-hmm. down what's actually happening, so they don't see it as like a money grab. You know, in a lot of those situations. Bach is a little bit different because he's been around for a while, but some of these other bands I work with are, are still developing mm. and these managers need to understand you don't want to just go out there and burn a shit ton of market or burn promoters left and right because that's how you get a bad rep. Um, that's how you don't get invited back to places. 
Um, that's how you really just destroy your name out there. So yeah, I mean, there's definitely a fine line of you know what is the you know the, the right thing is you sign the contract, the artist should get paid this. But on the flip side is well, we do this, this promoter is going to go out of business. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I remember one of the first shows that I ever cut at APA. Uh, I'll never forget it because it was the most horrible experience of my life. It was a first year festival, and rule number one of dealing with the first year festival is get the money in before mm-hmm. they announce. So I had the money in for. Uh-huh. You know, five artists. So that's uh, that's so the artist doesn't look like the asshole when they say, "Hey, never mind, we're not doing it." Well, it's to protect the artist, right? Yeah, yeah. This, you know, if this promoter, if it fails, the artist still gets paid. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're not showing up there and collecting half of the check or whatever. Well, and they, yeah, they announce, and then the artist says, "Oh, never mind, we're not doing it." You know, it doesn't look good for the artist. Yeah, <laughs> it, also that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this festival ended up going under, and this guy's like, "Is there any way I can get any of my money back?" And I point, I told him no. And the guy cried on the phone for probably 30 minutes over this whole mess. He basically got disowned from his family, from his brothers and so on and so forth. Cause they had like a construction company and, uh, which always is a red flag. His <laughs> wife left him and took her kids, uh-huh. kicked him out of the house. He went in massive amounts of debt yeah. and he was basically like cashed out of that community for causing such a stir. But like, what am I supposed to do? I mean, he signed a contract. He gave me the money. I did my job, but is it the right thing to do? Like, you know, completely ruining somebody's life. But I, again, I, I didn't ruin his life. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do that. Um, but that's, it's a hard, it's a hard pill to swallow. You know, when well, you, you, you when feel you for know those, that. I, I would say every year I'm in a situation like that, if not twice a year. Where there's somebody that just has money that just like, I'm going to book these bands and all these people are going to show up. And it's it's not that simple, you know. It's just there's so much no. more to it than booking than the bands is the easiest part. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, there's a, there's a show we did where I think that's exactly what happened. They they uh, put Sebastian in this hockey arena and nobody showed up. I mean, it was the papers will say tons of people showed up. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> definitely not. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, yeah, it's. It's a dangerous game to play as a promoter. I, and, and in that, but in that same breath, right? Like one of the things that I was taught is to give everybody an equal chance. So when you've got this band that everybody, you know, everybody wants, give them a shot. You know, I think any promoter that's listening to this and has talked to me or has ever emailed me knows that I get back to everybody. If you're interested in one of my bands, I'll respond. Whether or not you like that response or not. Um, but I ask a bunch of questions because you're not the first person to reach out to me that's never done a show before, you know, or has only done, or, or has only done a couple shows or have never done any shows with you. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to put you through the ringer and make sure that when my band gets there, they know exactly what they're getting into. Mm-hmm. Um, You've warned me in the, in the past, like, man, this might be a little bit hairy, be ready for it. And yeah. and it's good to know that yeah. because you're looking for the red flags and you can, you can be a little more proactive about things. But, you know, if you're, if you're looking to do something like that, my advice is if you want to be the money behind it and you want to learn how to do it, hire a reputable talent buyer that knows the ropes and let them teach you. And has a relationship with agents, yeah. Yeah, and well, yeah, exactly. They, you know, a lot of times, you know, you do that two, three years and you still keep that relationship with that, that talent buyer, but you kind of cut loose a little bit more. Um, and that happens a lot in venues too. There's usually, there's a lot of times a middle buyer that's got the relationship with the agent, but you know, you do all the settling and all the advancing with with the club. Not always directly involved with the. Well, they're they're involved, but they're out, they're not owned by the same person. But they're not, yeah, they're not involved by in the negotiation, and that's like an important thing too, because a lot of agents out there, 
will take somebody who they've never talked to or, or somebody that's green and they'll, they'll run through the ringer and, and get every dollar out of them for their band because they have no idea what the fuck they're doing. Um, you know, they don't know how to, how to research what that band's worth is in that market, how many times they've played there recently. Um, have they ever played there before? You know, a lot of people are like, oh, everybody knows this band because everybody that I talk to knows this band. Yeah. Well, no, you talk to your friends, you yeah. know that band because you all have similar tastes. That's yep. why they're your fucking friends. Yep. You yep. know? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that's, you know, they don't, they don't do the research outside, outside of the circle. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, that's important. And that's and, like and a, a really important like a, thing. A reputable buyer will will book a band that they don't know anything about but they know will sell well um or they're not even particularly interested in i mean and that, that happens all because the time. they've done the research and they yeah, have exactly they, it's, they've it's, done the research and they have marketers who who, who do the research with mm-hmm. them and so uh when you're booking a tour how, how do you start i mean you, i i know you guys usually find like anchor dates like festivals and big paying things and kind of kind of build stuff mm-hmm. around that um, but like after, after that part of it, what's, what's the process of, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of times people think you guys just throw a dartboard at a map, but <laughs> that's, that's almost never the Sometimes case. There's is. a couple times where I'm like, Ben, what the hell are you thinking? But you know, you gotta do what you gotta do, but not me. I have a rhyme and reason to everything. So yeah. my method is the same method for big bands or small bands is the, the first question is what are we doing this for and who are we doing this for? Mm. So and I mean, we can take Slashes, for example, 30th anniversary of, of the first Skid Row album. That's a great reason to go and tour. Mm-hmm. Um, where do we want to hit? Well, it doesn't fucking matter where we hit because we played fucking everywhere last time. Let's at least go and start with major markets. The first, but I will say the block one's the hard, is a, is a little bit of a weird one because we actually built that tour not knowing that we were going to do the, the anniversary of, of Skid Row. Actually, Baz made that decision like, I think a month before we announced it and then we... Yeah changed a bunch of stuff well because yeah he was um, he was but, talking about doing another album and uh you know and then when when that when that got announced i mean the, i i found out about it i think when everybody else found out about it and people just went nuts but yeah people love and especially in the past four or five years people love and really nostalgia shit i mean that's why you see so many anniversary tours because promoters are offering more money for anniversary stuff mm-hmm. so of course everybody's going to want to do it and to get back to my whole process you know, what's the reason behind this? Okay, well, if we need money, then we should just stick to major markets. Uh, or if it's, you know, we're still working on the same album, well, let's just do, let's be secondary. Mm-hmm. Figuring out why we're going out on tour and then building off of that. So, okay, so we're new album, we're going to go hit major markets, we're going to go play for five weeks, mm-hmm. four weeks, whatever it is. In my mind, I know how many days a row all my bands can do, how many days off they need. And then I take that, I, I basically take where where all the gear is at or where they're living. Fox lives in LA mm-hmm. nine out of ten times his tours his tours will start in Los Angeles, uh, or somewhere on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And then I just sort of build off that. Like, you know, I always try and keep my band's nose hundred and fifty to three hundred miles a night, uh, with a drive, off days, you know, up to six or seven hundred miles. Make it as easy for the artist because if it's easy for the artist, I don't get phone calls. Right? <laughs> yes. I mean yeah. My least favorite part of this job is when I'm going to bed at 11 o'clock at night and my phone rings half an hour after I lay down. Mm-hmm. On the other end of that line is someone who has a problem at settlement. <laughs> is out there because you, all my other tour managers know that your last resort is calling me. Uh-huh. If you, you have tried everything yeah. and the last resort is calling me, not the manager or anybody else. It's me. <laughs> so, 
Oh, I know that I'm the last. I'll call Ernie before I call you if I'm having a problem, and then Ernie will be usually be like, "I'm sleeping." Call Ben. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's fucking two hours behind me. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'll be honest with you. Usually, usually I'll reach out to him first, but he's he's probably doing the same thing you're doing. You know, just yeah. He's got kids that I don't. Um, which I also, I also. Leave me I alone, but then at least at least or, you guys can't say I didn't try to get in touch with you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't think a lot of people know this, but it, well, I think a lot of people misunderstand how old I am, uh, especially with when yeah. I'm dealing with, with Sebastian stuff. I'm thirty. I am as old as that first album. Oh, sorry, I'm thirty-one. I'm as old as that first album. To be honest with you, man, because I, I mean, you know, we we did a whole tour before I ever even met you, and I had no idea until I met you that you were younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> You're an old I'm a kid soul. compared to him. <laughs> um, but I fucking love eighties music. Uh it's funny actually on that that rock boat, I told people I was I was his agent and they didn't fucking believe me at all. None <laughs> not only one person believed me. So then, you know, going back to my, my way of doing things, uh, why are we doing it? Where are we going? How many shows they can do in a row, how, what's the most they can drive, what are they in? You know, whatever they're in sort of determines on how many, how far they can make those drives. There's also like Legal implications, you know, a bus driver can only drive, uh, anybody with a CDL license can only drive a mask of 500 miles. Uh, so that comes into consideration. Drive over that, it's an overdrive, you need to hire another driver. Once I get, you know, management approves my routing, I start getting offers. My first attack is to people who have done it before, especially people who have done shows and really won. And then from there, I'll start hitting up the other promoters in those markets. And I'll hold, you know, two days on either side of my target dates. So in case I need to shift dates around or whatever, I, I'll hold multiple dates. So I'll hold five five days per market. And then I'll start getting offers. And, you know, a lot of cases, it's most money wins. In some cases, it's what's the better room. You know, like there are certain rooms I know where Sebastian does better than others. Just as I know with like Plain White Tees, they do better in some than others. And even my small band, I know, you know, which, what's the punk rock room? What's the rock room? What's the folky room or whatever? And then from there, you start diving in a little bit deeper and you start looking at the ticketing fees. Well, okay, I know that Sebastian fans are going to pay this this amount of money for a ticket, but they're not going to spend this much money on a ticket. With the ticketing fees and the processing fees, they're actually going to be spending over the amount of money that they actually want to pay for that ticket. Well, how do I... How do I lower that gap? How do I, if I, if it's 30 bucks to buy a ticket and it's $45 out the door, how do I get that number close to the $30? Well, that's, you know, that, that's the ticketing fee. So, you know, rule of thumb is in a room that's more than a thousand cap, you can usually negotiate that ticketing fee down because a lot of people don't realize that that ticketing fee is, is a profit for the promoter. Um, so I negotiate that down as low as I can. And in some cases, I'll lower that ticketing fee a little bit and maybe I'll bump the ticket a buck or two. So I get to see more money going to the gross. And then from there, I figure out what the best deal is, whether it's the versus deal or, you know, is, this, is the promoter going to, this, you know, this promoter only offers me for another profit because he doesn't own any rooms. He doesn't get a piece of the bar. Am I going to do, you know, versus deals? What am I going to do? And then I start breaking down merch rates. I start breaking down expenses. I start negotiating. Well, you know, like you've got a nut, a house nut of $2,000, but you've also broken out security. You've also broken out, you know, front of house staff, well, let's just, why don't you just get rid of that and include it in your, in your house nut. And that way, you know, just breaking out a little hundred dollar expenses just doesn't mean anything. Let's just cut that. I'll give you this if you do that. And yeah, you know, it's, it's all about how do I, what, 
how do I make the most amount of money in a sellout scenario um, mm-hmm. for the artist? Because my I'm paid off of what the artist makes at the end of the night. Um, so I want mm-hmm. them to make the most amount of money. And then, you know, from there, it's you contract all the dates, send contracts out, collect deposits. Hopefully everything sells really well. And then we do the, the post-show accounting and on to the next one. So it's a lot of paperwork, it's a lot of phone calls, it's a lot of emails. I do that for all of my bands. Plus I do, you know, I, I help out as a territorial over at APA. So I help out a lot of people's bands too. As you know, as I'm saying it, you can sort of start to understand how redundant a booking agent's job can be. And going back to what I, my, what I first said in that it's important to expand your, your roster, I think in, in a lot of senses in that so it's a way to help keep things fresh. Um, and keep you thinking on your feet and talking to new people because, you know, I love my live nation guys, but sometimes I want to talk to somebody else and, you know, there's a lot of people out there that want to do shows. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, I mean, the live nation thing, you know, they're, they're valuable in their own right, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of really good smaller promoters out there that, you know, do just as good of a job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just, you know, you need to watch out for some of them, but yeah, I mean, Live Nation, you know the checks and clear. So, what uh, what advice do you have for people that are looking to maybe go into the management route, maybe be a booking agent someday? I mean, what's uh, you know, what what things do they need to pursue, and what positions do they need to put themselves in to, to do well? So that's a great question. Um, I've done a I've done a bunch of panels over the years that like I've done NAM and I've spoken at UCLA over the years. Um, I get asked this question a lot, so I tell people this: there is a wonderful book. That should is basically the Bible of this industry. Everything you need to know about the music industry by Donald Passman. It's a super easy read. He explains all of the different areas of our business and breaks down sort of like the main points you need to know about all this. And starting to read that is, is sort of like a great intro. But I would also say like, just get involved. I mean, no one is going to come to you and be like, oh, do you want this great gig being an A&R rep at Universal or... You, you, no one's going to offer you your dream job in the music industry. No one. In order to get to your dream job, you're probably going to have to do a bunch of other jobs. Like an A&R rep really knows artists. They know the label side of things. They know the agent side of things. They know the management side of things. So those A&R guys generally have experience in all of those fields. And A&R is, is a, a lifelong gig. I mean, those guys who do A&R are in those positions 30, 40 years. But if you're in school... You know, walk down to your local club and be like, hey, who's your talent buyer? Don't use the word booker because it makes you sound like a fucking noob. Who's your talent buyer? <laughs> yeah. And then get that person's contact and ask them, you know, to do like a mentor mentorship. You know, are, are you able to tag along with some shows and see how they're, how they're doing deals and how they're settling shows? If you're going to shows a lot, make sure you, you at some point introduce yourself to the door guy. Be like, my name is blah, blah, blah. I've, you know, I've been here every day the past week and I keep seeing you. I just want to introduce myself. Those guys are your friends because they're going to be the ones that are not going to kick you out at the end of the night when you're just trying to talk to the band or you're trying to talk to the buyer who's about to walk into settlement. Make yourself known. If you're managing, I mean, shit, everybody knows somebody in the music business or, you know, everybody knows a musician. Uh, and I can't you, we all know musicians that that's not managed. Read some books, read some articles. Approach that person, tell them you have no fucking idea what you're doing, but you'd like to help them with their, mm-hmm. with their career in some, in some aspect. If they say yes, then help them with their career. Don't sign anything. Just work. Just, just try and do some stuff. Like, oh, like, 
you want to get spun on the local radio station. Well, let me make some calls and see if I can figure out how to do that. You know, and then go to the next thing and then the next thing and the next thing. Punk rock education. Yeah, exactly. The, the punk yeah. rock education. Well, you know, I know I know a ton of people that got started in this business just because they begged a band to let them sell merch for them or drive their van or something like that. Right, exactly. It all builds on itself, you know. You start from the bottom and, and move on up. Right, exactly. And just, just immersing yourself with with the industry as a whole is just the, the I think the best way. To, I mean, that's what I did, right? Like, I just immersed myself. I had a fucking idea what I was doing, but I was like, I'm going to try this because I think this would be a lot of fun. And, mm-hmm. it was, you know, I didn't see any sort of return until I got an assistant gig where I was making some sort of steady salary. I don't think at any point between high school and then was I like, man, I just made a shit ton of money for myself. I, never. I, I didn't have one of those coming to God moments where like, I was like, oh, I can do this for a full-time job. But that's just me. You know? you know, like there are plenty of people who started as a local promoter and are now very successful local mm-hmm. promoters. But it is a gamble. Promoter, you're not, you know, that's, that's your money. You know, you need to have all that money regardless of how ticket sales do. You need to be prepared to pay that band all of their guarantee. And that's why I'm, as a tour manager, I'm going to do, I'm going to do this video that I was telling you about, about how to settle a show. But you do got to kind of skirt the line because, you know, they're they're footing the whole bill <laughs> you know and if you get into points that's good for both of you but if you don't get into points it's you know, and if you were the tour manager say okay well we'll give you 500 bucks back you ain't just affecting the artist you're affecting my pay you're affecting the manager's pay you're affecting yeah. everybody at that point you know like mm-hmm. you 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 are the the front line of defense as a tour manager out there and props to you man i could never fucking do that i i i i can't do that <laughs> well, I mean, but that's uh, as a tour manager, and, and don't do this unless you are told to or you know what you're doing. But like uh, Andrew Ellis, who we both know, is a he's a APA agent. Uh, we did a tour that, and it didn't, it wasn't selling well, and it wasn't, it was just because it was like the wrong time. I don't really know why, but it wasn't selling well. And he he goes to me and he's like, "Listen, these these uh these guys are losing their ass. Anything you can do to get their expenses down, do it. If we don't need twenty security guys, let's figure out how to make it on ten or five or whatever." And, you know, if we don't need all these stagehands, you know, there's a lot you can do. And then that's going to look good for you and your artist next time around. Because, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it's a, it's a friend's game. You mm-hmm. know, if, uh, you know, and then at the, on the same token, I'm not scared at all to get in a promoter's grill that I know is ripping me off. <laughs> so Yeah. Um, and you but, can obviously, there are, there, are, there are some scenarios where you can obviously tell that a promoter's ripping you off. Because he mm. says there's there was twenty security guys, but you saw three that entire night. Yeah. I, I think I think you even walked around with a camera or something like that and taking pictures and stuff, and then said there's mm. no fucking way we're paying for this. And it's like, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's no way you're paying for that. You know, yeah. um, it's, you but know, then but the good the good promoter, and you know, I mean, technically you can. If you read the contracts, or if you read the uh, the deal memos, they always say approved and documented expenses. So technically they should have documentation for all that stuff. But, you know, if if they're losing their ass, you don't worry about that. And if you are if you see them bringing their costs down that don't really affect you, you know, it's you can usually trust them in that, that respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I tell you on a, you know, every time I know there's something, I can sense something greasy happening, I always tell you to tell the promoter to prepare, prepare all the receipts. You know, don't leave oh, yeah. until you see the last one. Get the ad pack. Well, and I'm, you know, like, yeah, exactly. Well, that's that's a big one. 
that's a big one. Like, if a show's not selling well, I'm not going to bug them for the ad pack. But we had shows on that Bach tour sell out in, like, a couple days. And I didn't even really think about that. But you told me, you know, listen, they're, they're, if it sold out, it sold, sells out that fast, they're not spending all that ad money. Because there's no sense, you know, putting mm-hmm. out ads for a show that's already sold out. But, yeah. Um, yeah, but, you know, make friends. And if they're not screwing you over, you know, you can usually trust them most of the time. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, assume everybody's good until proven guilty. Yes. Exactly, exactly. And you know when yeah, exactly. Well, Ben, thank you so much, dude. Uh really appreciate you uh you giving me a call and, and talking to me today. No worries. Thank you for having me. Um and yeah, you know, for everybody listening, make sure to check out all of my bands and um if you're looking for a great tour manager, I can absolutely vouch for Ryan. Uh as long as he's not busy with any of my bands. <laughs> <laughs> any of his bands. Yeah. <laughs> hey, but um, cool, dude. Yeah. So, and uh, you know, we're gonna be hitting the road again in October, no matter what. So, everybody buy tickets for that that Sebastian Bach tour. All right, dude. I will catch you later when all this is done. We'll grab a beer. Sounds good, my friend. You take it easy, stay safe, and uh, stay healthy right. out there. All right, dude. Catch you later. All right, you know, bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Bus Call. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit us at patreon.com slash buscall. Patreon members will get the podcast a week before it's released to the public, and they can also sign up to have advance notice of who's going to be on and the opportunity to ask questions. Please take some time to visit show-logistics.com. We've dedicated the first page to sell merch to raise money for Crew Nation's Global Relief Fund. As you know, with COVID-19, basically all touring has stopped for the foreseeable future, and there's thousands and thousands of crew out of work, and we're donating all the profits many of the merch sold there straight to Crew Nation. Thanks so much again, and please rate, review, and subscribe.